0: What if I told you that some of your people are dragging you down, that they're slowing your growth and limiting your company's potential? Would you know who they are? If not, do you wanna know how to find them and get rid of them? That's exactly what my guest today will teach us and it's massively entertaining. Jeffrey Hazlett recounts his time as CMO of Eastman Kodak and how he reset the culture to one of accountability and results-oriented action by weeding out the naysayers and the negative Nancys one by one. Fair warning, he gets animated, and there's a bit of adult language. But this is one of my most fun episodes yet, and I know you're going to love it. It's also my first live recording, so be sure to stick around to the end for bonus questions from the audience. Build Cycle, the podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRuler.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of the Build
1: Cycle.
0: So Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming. I know you guys
1: wanted to get out of here this morning. This um, is, uh, there's nothing better to do than a podcast and press, media. Right. <laughs> in fact, that's one of the lessons every entrepreneur should learn, is when somebody calls you, you do it. Period. End of story. Yeah, it's... In- right. The old adage is what, like any press is good press, exactly. bad press is good press. I've done everything, man. I've done, like one time my team, when I was a corporate officer, gay radio called me. Now that's not the most popular things for most corporate people to do. I've said, no, I'm doing it. Favorite interview I've ever done in my entire life. And I've been back there nine times. <laughs> you know, awesome. So it's just a good time, a good time to do it. So you always, you do everything. You do it all. I even do some of the ones I don't like to, I mean, really don't like to do and I'll do them because yeah. it's good for you.
0: Yeah, right on. Well, let's knock it off topic because we're on a little bit of a, a time crunch. We don't want to keep the other people from doing their thing. So, you were CMO at Kodak from 06 to 10, which was really that time when digital cameras disrupted the film industry. And that's, we're going to talk about how you guys dealt with that. And,. You're also chairman of the C Suite Network, which yeah. is a group of podcasts and tools and apps and things for executives and really anybody in business. Yeah. Um just to give people a little bit of you know, two second background on you, is there anything you'd add to that just to kinda help people understand why they should believe what you're about to well, tell? Well, I
1: mean I bought and sold over two hundred and fifty businesses, about twenty five billion in transactions of selling of those businesses, buying and selling them. I've you know, divested companies of you know, my biggest sale was two billion dollars probably. I've I'm on a board of directors of a company that just went public for, for $12 billion, um, not more than a month ago. So, yeah, I've done a lot of them. Some of them have been great successes, some great, 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 huge failures. So, you know, have all that kind of stuff. Right on. All right, when you were at Kodak, you
0: were telling a story earlier about how somebody came in with a digital camera and obviously Kodak was in the film business and to them and then this has been a widely reported story they're like hell no you're gonna kill our business right and what happened was it sure enough did kill their film business along with everybody else's film business but what I'd like to talk to you about is because you were there and you saw that and then you guys went on to try and figure out some other things to resurrect the business that were not the digital camera per se, is what was it about the corporate culture that, that prevented you from seeing that as an opportunity instead of a threat? Well, that
1: was actually done back in 1975, so well before I got there. But And it was clear that once I got there, I started he- you know, hearing the story, the legend of that story. That, and then you'd also sit back because I was also you know a customer of Kodak. I'd done a lot of work with them in the graphic arts industry because I was in the printing industry for a long, long time and Kodak was at the forefront of that. That's a main portion of their business was the graphic arts. So the imaging science, material science. So, but yeah, when you get inside of that, and by the time I got there, that was clear that the, actually it was clear that that time the digital camera th- phase was gonna go by us. It was gonna go by us. Cause you're not that far ahead of it. Meaning you gotta be ahead of it. So we invented the very first digital camera back in 75. We've pawned the first one off. In fact, we put it in a script of a video that we did that we pawned it off to Apple with the grace of an anaconda swallowing a rabbit. I mean, it was like, that's that we forced Apple. I mean, we were that powerful at the time to take this really shitty camera and go to market with it. That was back in 1996. So, and by here I was, you know, now 20 years late, 20 years later. And now I'm at this company, you know, um, or at 10 years later, I guess. I'm at this company, and uh, knowing all that history, knowing all that background, and so it was real clear that man, we're not going to be able to do that. We got to now find something else. So is it going to be? Was it going to be disruptive cell phones? Was it going to be you know inkjet printers? Was it going to be this? Was it going to be that? You know, I was in the mode of like we had to change the whole thing. Well, I, you know, I truly one of the things most people don't know is I wanted to buy the company. And I actually tried to buy the company on a side hustle, uh, which didn't endear ad- 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 me well to some of the other officers of the company, you can probably imagine. But nonetheless, you know, I said, look, we should sell the name off. We should sell Kodak. Kodak, the name, we got, we could have got $2 billion, $2 billion just for the name. And I uh, helped bring on the licensing of the name because the name was still that strong. So we built $100 million, in less than four years, built $100 million dollar. Uh, licensing business just using our name and that was it that was just money that we got just by using our name and I put it on everything I mean if it wouldn't move I'd put it on it you know uh, batteries and uh, you know all kinds of camera accessories but I even put them on glasses you know in the UK there's you can get Kodak glasses Uh, Brazil you can get Kodak glasses so there's lots of different things what happens is you can only move as fast as your slowest common denominator and there is a group of people who have control. If you have control of the culture, you have control of the company, and you're the, you're the, you're the, the champions of no, you're the champions of naysayers, and that's what you have in the company, there's no, I don't care how powerful you are, you're not going to get shit done. You know, and I have a rule that I actually wrote in my very first book when I left Kodak. I wrote a book called The Mirror Test, and I call it The Rule of Thirds. A third of the people get it right away. A third of the people eventually get it. And there's a third of people who never get it. Never, ever. And you have them in your business today. You have them in your life. And yet we spend most of our time focusing on that bottom third and having that bottom third control everything that we do in our businesses, everything we do in our lives. And, and I'm I've learned over the years, especially as I get older, is to cut the bottom third out as fast as I possibly can. So the very first day I joined Kodak, I had to make the decision to get us out of the Olympics. Now, think about this. In 1896, the first modern day Olympics, Kodak was the very first sponsor of the modern Olympics. And ever since then, Kodak had been a sponsor of the Olympics worldwide since that time period. And on my first day, I said, we're leaving it. We were spending $100 million, $100 million a year in sponsoring the Olympics and all that goes with it, do you know how many cameras you have to sell <laughs> at a 10% margin to pay for $100 million? Let me give you the answer because people in Kodak started shouting out answers. I said, there's, no, there's not enough fucking cameras sold in the world by all the companies that are selling cameras that could pay for that sponsorship. So it's asinine to even think that we should be doing it. So I remember pointing out to the person in the room and saying, who's in charge of the Olympics? I knew her name, I'm gonna say her name. I said, I have a ticket here for you. You're going to Switzerland today. I booked a flight for you. You have to go home. You have to pack, your flight's leaving in four hours and you're going to get us out of the Olympics. That was my first day. <laughs> Sitting in front of 7,000 people who work for me in the marketing department, okay, give you an idea. So uh, that's what we had, you know, because we had to make those drastic choices. But I remember my CEO, by the way, uh, who I learned a great deal from um, at the time, who he said, Is this the right decision? I said, Boss, this is the right decision. I said, he, said, he said, You would make this no matter what. I said, Make this, I, I'm betting that this is the right decision. I mean, this is absolutely, there's no, no way we can do this. We've got to operate differently. So, but in that reason I'm bringing this story up, is I said to the rest of the team, I said, uh, and I talked to him about the book, The Goal. If you've never had a chance to read this book called The Goal, every one of you should read the book, because in the book it talks about this young, this guy who's uh, got a Boy Scout troop, and he's trying to figure out how to run businesses, how to do this and how to do that. His marriage is falling apart, and and uh, he takes these Cub Scouts on a, on a on a trip up the hill, and as he's taking them up the hill, well, there's these fast kids that get way ahead, and there's these slow kids. And so he devises the system where he's like interchanging them so they can only move as fast as the slowest kid. And he realized that's the stupidest thing he's ever heard of. So, so, so that's where I got this rule of the third, the third, the third. And I just basically told everybody in that room, I said, there's a third of you that are going to try to stop us. I'm going and I said, I'm going to hunt you down. I'm going to hunt you down in this company. I'm going to find you. I don't care where you're at, where you're hiding. I will find you and you will leave this company. I said, uh, uh, we love you. We love you. We thank you for everything you've done, but we are going to miss you. Okay? Uh, because so how,
0: how do you identify those people? I mean, some of oh, them are going to be obvious. They're going to be bitching and moaning about everything. But there's, you know, there's some that don't, and they <laughs> kind of can ruin the corporate culture, you know, from the bottom up or the top down. And you know,
1: well, but so... you also you, you you have to identify by just being relentless in your pursuit of doing the right thing. So imagine the, the second day I'm there. I invite customer. I got customers coming in. I got you know. When you're an executive at that level, you've just, when you. Oh, you, thank outside. you. Yeah. When you're an executive at that level, you know I have my own floor, right? With only two of us on the floor, the entire floor. I got my. I got a conference room that's mahogany. I got a mahogany-lined room. I got a, a small conference room. I got a big-ass conference room. I got all these resources. I'm in my big, big conference room. I got customers come in. A customer sits down on the chair. The chair is so old and dilapidated that in this big leather chair he falls over hits his head on the table cuts himself we have to call the ambulance to pick him up and then i go around the, the conference room and i find out there's three other chairs that are broken and i said uh so i called my assistant and i said julie i said you got to order me 12 chairs and she goes yes mr hazel no problem and blah 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 well then I go back in there a week later and there's still these broken chairs. Like, what the hell? I just asked you to order these chairs, get some damn chairs in here, you know, because at, at the level of which you're out operating for a company that size, when you say go do stuff, you know, like you like give you an idea, like even on a, we have a private jet service and I mentioned, I like diet Mountain Dew from then on my plane. The plane is stocked with diet Mountain Dew. I'd be in freaking China. There's like cases of diet Mountain Dew. They don't serve diet Mountain Dew in China. Okay. Because that's the way they operate. And, and so here she, could, she, I, she said, I said, Julie, what's, what's the deal? And she goes, well, we can't order 12 chairs. I go, what do you mean you can't order? It's against the rules. We can't order 12 chairs. What do you mean it's against the rules? We can't order 12 chairs. I said, okay, thank you. Then I thought for about 30 minutes, how do I get around this? So I went to her later in the afternoon. I said, can you order six chairs? And she said, yeah. I said, order two orders of six. And so I did. And two weeks later, the CFO comes to visit me. And he says, uh, uh, well, first the comptroller came to see me because that it, it, it gets escalated. <laughs> and so you, you can't do this. Well, yes, I can. And they go, well, you can't order. You can't order 12 chairs. Tr- I didn't order 12 chairs. Tr- I ordered six. Twice. And that's what your rules say. So well, that's what I did. And so then the CFO comes to me and said, says, you, you can't do this. I said, Frank, all due respect, I, I, one, I can, and two, I fucking did it. So there you go. So and your rules allow for that. And so. You know, those are the kind of things you have to do in order to do it. But now I know who they are. And, and, <laughs> and so, so you start, you know you, you know, you start making this list. And then one of the things you have to do in that position is start to recruit other people who are like you. And you find these champions, these champions of change. And I called them the fire out your ass brigade. Because I I told this story about, you know, how we're going to change things. So like one of the things that we had, we had a, 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 a like months after I got there, we were about to announce a new product. And this product is this large inkjet printer, this inkjet printer that prints 4,000 pages per minute. It's the world's largest and fastest and highest quality inkjet printer in the world. But it does what we call offset class. You now, offset class is if you pick up a brochure, you look at a printed brochure. It's beautiful. It's good cool, But inkjet, inkjet was printing these 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 device. This device is going to be by inkjet, so you can customize, versamize every single page at 4,000 pages per minute. It's the highest in the world. No one's ever done this. No one had ever done this, and we're going to announce this big printer. And this printer, by the way, is like the size of a semi-trailer tractor truck, and it's it you know it costs you a million to four million dollars. And instead of ink with cartridges, it has 55-gallon inkjet uh, reserves. So this is a massive printer. We're going to make this announcement. It's a really good, cool printer, and they came and showed me the pictures of it, and I said. I said we're not announced no we're not done we're not announcing this they said mr. Hazel we're announcing this in two months I said no you're not announcing it. I'm the chief marketing officer of Eastman Kodak company and I could say what you can do what you can't do and you're not announcing that I said you just got to tell me this is the world's fastest printer this is the, the highest quality printer in the world it it, co- it prints on glass uh, uh, glass coated stock uh, glossy stocks and uh, clay coated stocks no one and no one does this no one in the world can do this and you're telling me this is the printer and I'm looking at it and it's this big gray rectangular box. I said it looks like something that Soviet shotputters have designed. I said I said when I when I announce it on the stage with the CEO and we're up there in front of 8,000 people and we pull the curtain back, people should go, oh, oh my God! And they should rush the stage and and they should take pictures of it. It should look like a Maserati. It should look like a Ferrari. It should look like fire is coming out of its ass as it's sitting there on the showroom floor. And, and, and I said, until you design something that looks like that, you know, I'm not announcing it because I got to put a stake in the ground and this is what we're going to stand for. And they said, could we have a couple of weeks? So they came back and I wish I could show you a visual of this, but they, 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 they made the top white. They put, they they rounded the corners. They uh, put glass in the windows all in a couple of weeks. And, and then they put a yellow racing stripe down the side. So, <laughs> so it looked like something Czechoslovakians have now built, you know, if you could use those terms back. And, and so it was funny and it was great and it was better. It was better. It still wasn't what we wanted, but it was better. And so, yeah, I said, absolutely, we're announcing this. I like, couldn't be more proud. But so, so what I started calling that was, you know, that I made that. And then I started telling that story to everybody in the company that this is what we're going to stand for. In, and I will stop, I will stop a product, I will stop a product launch, I will stop us from doing, it. I will stop this, if I have to, to stop you, you champions of no, from getting in the way of what this greatness of this company can achieve. And so, uh, and we set that as an, a great example. And so the people would come up to me and say, thank you, and, and they wanna join it. And I said, well, you're part of the, f- you know, fire out your ass brigade because that's what I, that was the example I used. And so that crew would go with me in the middle of, you know, after five o'clock, it was the kind of place that at five o'clock, when the doors would shut at five, you know, when they, the shifts over you, you, if you were standing by the door, you could literally be killed, literally be killed. So after, after five o'clock, you could roam the halls, you could go anywhere in the company, but you could always find those one or two people that were really great. And so I started changing things. Like I took all the, like you they hadn't they hadn't, uh, you know, like updated the buildings and stuff like that. So, so you know, I, they, I said, I, I need, can we get the carpets cleaned? And they go, well, n- you know, yes. And then they come back, no, we can't because it's going to cost $3,300. I said, well, that's outrageous. $3,300 to clean the carpets on our floor? Are you kidding me? So I went to Sears and got one of those carpet cleaning things, and I cleaned the carpets. And then that got out because then the unions came to me and said, you can't do that. And I was like, <laughs> so I said, guys, okay, then how about you come in and I'll buy chicken and we'll do the next carpet. That's what we're going to do. It's on the weekend. You want to do it on the weekend? And then I started recruiting people. So I started loaning out my steam cleaning unit. And then, then I found out while I was cleaning the carpets that on my floor, the 17th floor of the executive building, I ripped up the carpet. I said, what's under, what's, what's under this green shag carpet? I said, I wanted to know. Green shag carpet, which I put there in 1974, was this beautiful marble floors. So next weekend, I ripped up the carpets. And then I stacked the carpets up. And, um, and this is a true story. I stacked the carpets up and then said for them to come and get them. Day one, no one came and get them. Day two, no one came. They kept promising me. Day three and day four. Finally, on the fifth day on Friday, I, I, I got the elevator. I shoved all the carpet in the elevator and then put the name of the person that made the promise for me. And for three days, it rode up and down the elevator with this guy's <laughs> name. And so this was to show that we're going to have responsibility in this company. And of course, the word got out. And of course, by the way, that I buffed the, I buffed and waxed the, the the, the polished floors, and they're beautiful. And uh, the word got out that this is the kind of things you need to do inside the company.
0: So I feel like you have stories for days, for yeah, weeks, right? Yeah, you can. You can. <laughs> and so I want to I reel back into the, the, the culture side of it because I, I feel like you know, for people who are starting a company, there's so many of us that you know we start a company because we're excited about what we're doing, and we have no idea about management or all these other things. We just know we want to build this great thing, and so to create a culture or manage a culture in the right direction, like you were, you know, using these tactics to do that. What are you know, if you don't have the opportunities to rip up carpet or something like what are a couple of things that you notice about the culture in general that you could recommend to entrepreneurs to just watch out for and, and, exactly, and nip them in the bud. right? Exactly
1: what I just said. Find the ch- Identify the champions of no and drive them out of your company. Drive all the naysayers, the obstructionists that get in the way of doing what you're going to do. Get them out of your freaking company. You identify them in days. You know who they are they're not going to change their behavior. And they, by the way, that's difficult because it's going to be your sister, it's going to be your brother, it's going to be your cousin, it's going to be your best friend, or it's going to be somebody you don't know. And that's my point. It's everybody. And they come in all shapes and sizes. The second thing that I think is most critical is the stories I just told you. You're going to stand for a certain thing. This is it. This is our standard. If it means shutting things down, if it means returning product, if it means you know, doing, <laughs> doing the most just you know, uh, big, broad, bold things. That's what you have to do to do it. And then the third, which I think is very clear from the stories that I was telling you lead, you do it. You absolutely do it down to the, you know, like we, we had cost cutting matters, as you can imagine, in a company like that to go from where it was to where it was. You know, I was trimming, trimming hundreds of millions of dollars and rearranging the budgets to to get them to be outbound rather than, than than just heavy cost centers, and and you know so we did things like like little things like we have to cut the garbage service off. You have to you can go get to fit. the biggest the, the biggest fight we had was the fact that you that we you wouldn't we, the janitors didn't couldn't pick up your garbage at your desk anymore. So you had to take your garbage down the hall to a central closet and dump your garbage. I thought we were gonna have a frickin' riot. And and finally, I just said to everybody, what the hell do you do at home, right? What do you do at home? Does somebody come into your house in some trash fairy, pick up all this trash? You know, you take it to the main thing. If it's in your bathroom, you dump it in your kitchen or you dump it into the garage or you dump it somewhere. How about do the same thing? And so then, then, then the you know people complained that the bathrooms were getting clean. About what did I do? So I started cleaning. I started cleaning all the bathrooms. Well, one I true I, I, this is a fact. I like a clean bathroom. Okay. So uh, so yeah, if it's dirty, you clean it, right? I mean, what's wrong with that? Yeah, I, and one of the other
0: people here at Fireside Conference mentioned a great story about you know they'd come in on a Monday morning and see a uh, kitchen sink full of the dishes, dishes that people yeah. left, and and rather than like. Take turns or blame. They just called everybody in. Everybody did it as a group, and then that set the example that hey, you know, you got to clean your own stuff up, right? Yeah. So, you almost certainly, I'm guessing, had to not only identify the A players and the, the positive people that were going to champion growth in your companies, but also probably recruit some at some point and bring people in. Like,
1: no, you... I really didn't. No, I brought one person <laughs> in the entire time I was there. I had one person who's still my partner today. Um, but for, but, by the way, who was a person too. who, who, who years ago, who years before actually kicked me out of, or tried to kick me out of a convention <laughs> because I, 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 I bent the rules and brought somebody in I shouldn't have brought, which is totally true. I did. And cause I'm always stretching the rules cause I don't think rules apply to me. You know, that's you know, <laughs> certain people that, that just live their life that way. And so I'm one of those people. And uh, until I find out that rules do apply to you and you have to adhere to them, but I will push them until I can because they're frickin' rules. And um, so, yeah, he tried to kick me out. But uh, by the way, he's one of my, he's my best friend. I would yeah. die for him, he'd die for me, I think. So uh, what about
0: for C-Suite Network and some of the other things you've done since? Like, obviously you recruited people to build these other companies. Like, how I, do you identify those positive people before they're in well, their Well, one, role? I think
1: great people attract great people. So I think the more you exhibit the things that you do and the way that you lead, other people want to follow, so that's that's one. Um, and then those people find great people as well. But you find great people everywhere you turn. You just gotta look. You just gotta be ready for it, right. and you gotta be open to it. And then sometimes you you gotta you see you see things in them that they don't see in themselves, and you you nurture that. You gotta nurture it. So yeah, I, uh, today I, I'm looking for always looking for great people.
0: Yeah.
1: And and I find them. But many times they, they actually, I think once you start doing the things you do, they start coming to you and you find them that way, which is really cool.
0: Appreciate the input because I think that's one thing we struggle with is, you know, like you said, a lot of times these small companies, you're hiring your friend, your brother, your sister, mom
1: sometimes, and letting those people go is really tough, but you got to make hard decisions but to hopefully the company. Yeah, but hopefully you can keep those people and you find the right roles. The the, the, the problem you have sometimes, as I said uh, earlier, you I, I was at some other thing and uh, as an entrepreneurial journey, it's the same for every entrepreneur. It's the same for every business. You start off as one-man or one-woman bands, okay? That's how you start. The next evolution is then you you add devout followers. So it's people who are standing by you, people who believe in you, people who love what it is, and they just happen to be there, and you grab them because, one, you don't know any better, and, two, because they will, and they'll come and work for almost nothing and everything else. We all know that. Then there comes the next level in the business where you have to add – skilled practitioners and professionals and things the problem is is in moving those people at the second level to the third and whether you can and Setting levels in the expectations to talk about the conditions of satisfaction of what it will take to move to the next level So the person who was your finance person at the second level Probably is not going to have the skill set to move to the next level if you're growing at the scale that you think but because of your feelings for that person, you, you leave them in a place where they're going to fail. And so it's real important that you don't do that. And so you have to have really great, good, hard discussions early on about what it takes to move to that. And by the way, that also includes you. There are times in which you're the chairman, you're the, you're the CEO, and, and if you've ever watched some really smart companies, they know that, that I can't be the CEO of this. I've got to bring in this person. I've got to bring in this person. But I'm a great you know, architect. I'm a great this. I'm a great that. And so you have to learn those skill sets and know what that is. And that's an important thing to do. you probably you're,
0: one of the hardest, too, is oh. to, to
1: realize your limitations and and realize when somebody's going to do the things better than you. But that's also Incredibly important is to bring people in that are better than. Oh, you, you just and that's also a great strength, isn't it? Yeah. The the realization of I am really good at this, right? So you can there's certain things I am really good at, and and thank goodness I've got great people who I've partnered with in my business, like my son, my daughter, uh, Trisha Ben, Carl Post, who have other skill sets that that I don't possess. Okay. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person that would typically go walk into a room and go and meet everybody in the room. You know, like my wife or or somebody like Tricia will walk into a room, meet one or two people, and get deep conversations and know everything. I'll never be that person, right? And uh, not that I don't love you or wouldn't want to, I just don't have the patience or the skill set or or the aptitude to do it as well as that um, just because of who I am and my own attention spans and everything else. But to understand that or to understand I have a business partner who starts almost every phone call with, hey, Jeff, you're not going to want to hear this. <laughs> All right, That's what most of our phone calls are. And it's, But you know what? I, I've, I've come to love that because he's going to tell me the raw truth of the things that we need to know and we got to deal with it but, because I just don't want, you know, I'm just like, you deal with it, you deal with it, you deal with it. And not because I, I, I can't, cause I don't have to. And so, but it's important for me. He, he, that's his way of saying to me, you gotta pay attention to this, right? And so, um, you know, just, it's just good to have that. You gotta have that. If you don't have that kind of understanding of who you are, it's pretty hard for people to, to help you get where you wanna go. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Thank but, you so much. There's a lot to digest in that. And I appreciate your time. You bet. Thanks hey stick around because at this point we got a couple of questions from the audience this first one we couldn't really pick up on the mic because we didn't have it aimed out at the audience so the guy said basically that he was hearing from Jeffrey that a lot of the people working for them that were these naysayers were missing out on the purpose and so he asked how did you connect purpose with the future you wanted to create for the company here's Jeffrey's response
1: that's, a, that's, that's a, a really insightful question and it's, it's, I will also tell you that it's a, a little piece with that I also had to help change the purpose because at a company like that everybody wanted to go back and this is what they would say Jeff make it like it used to be <laughs> The comfort zone. right and I said what do you mean like it used to be you know we were great make it like it used to be I said it will never be like it used to be <laughs> alright and, and so I said, look, I will never look like I used to when I was 21. I look better today. <laughs> and so it was a mindset that we had to do. So I, I really understood the nature that mood is sometimes more important than culture. Okay. Culture is something that takes a long period to develop. Cultures evolve. And in a business, you can't say this is our culture you can't you can you can try but your culture is going to evolve because culture if we were the company together it's our culture your culture your culture your and we're all together that makes our company culture so I can't control it I can only help nurture it and move it but mood mood is to me everything mood kills a business or makes a business if you have a bad mood have you ever been to a restaurant that is like a five-star unbelievable restaurant and the mood of the people that work in it are really shitty. Like, like, quite frankly, like most airlines, okay? <laughs> airlines do their best, the, the be, airlines are supposed to do one thing, what? Get you there safely. That's it, not crash the plane, okay? But the experience that you have with the people makes it so bad that you you, you lose track of the fact that they're really doing a great job, right? Have you ever been to a shitty restaurant? The food's not that great, but it's so much fun, right? And you want to go back? That's the way you got to look at the company too. And how do you shift the mood, right? So I had to have the level set of like, let's be clear: we're never going back to these new, new days. We're going somewhere else. If you want to get on that boat, if you want to go there, great. If you don't, get the hell out of this company. And you have to literally be like that. And so that's the shift. It, but it's I, I can't tell you how incredibly hard. You know, think about this in your own. If you're running smaller business, think about compounding that times. 45,000 or 150,000 people, it's a really tough thing to do, and so you, you have to, we put in a program called FAST, uh, I can't even remember the acronym, but I, it was like, you know, fo- oh, focus accountability, simplicity, and trust that that we talked and we talked and we talked and we showed people because you know, a theme, so it was like around focus, what is it that you do? What is your promise? What is it that you have you, you, in the company have to deliver, and how does it relate to everything else? Accountability is then how do you deliver that promise? And if you say you're going to do it, we're going to do it. Simplicity was—we actually had the word "s" with speed that we had to do it with, with with great speed. And then the CFO came to me and said, "Jeff, we have to change that. We have to make things simple around here. You know, not complicated. You can imagine all the rules that we had. And so we literally started sunsetting rules, and you know, you can't do this and do, do this. And so we we made simplicity, which was really cool because the acronym was all about driving change. So we changed the acronym halfway through the camp. So it was like, wow, what a great, great lesson. And um, so, you know, so each of those really led us to, um, to to make it make a bigger change. Thank you. Thank you. Good question. Anybody else? Super. Well, thank you. Well, let me share and be a part. You, you got what was one? The, what was the T? F-A-S-T? Uh, Trust. 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 Yeah, thank you. Thank Tray. you. Trust, which is around which is around, uh, I call it more tension now than trust, but uh, around the trust piece was really around having healthy debate. That it's okay to—it's okay for you to challenge, because you gotta imagine in a company like kodak you couldn't challenge anybody, especially if they were an executive, right? And a lot of times I'd go into plants, you know, and I would meet, meet with the workers, and, and, and I spent a lot of times, I, I was one of the few officers that actually went and visited customers. <laughs> And then went into the plants and would go and hang out with people and do the things. 'Cause that to me, that's just the way you do it. So, but I learned things like, you know, that when they do make film, by the way, they make when we do make film. By the way, the last roll of film that that has been made already, last roll of film that you ever see in your life will be made. But there, but let me be clear. There's you know, like trillions of feet still in warehouses around the around the world. But when they when they line up those those plants, and by the way, the plants are like a mile long, they do it in the dark the workers complete blackness complete black because it's film if you turn the lights on it fucking ruins the film so you can, you know, it makes sense but I didn't know that and you talk about so I went into there when they were making it one time I, it's the most scariest thing I've ever been in my life I mean, I've i been in caves before you know and this was like scary so it was like unbelievable but you got, But you go to these places and then the employees would say you're the first officer I've ever met in the company you know and it was like wow so, so we had to instill this kind of whole thing around trust, and and it was okay to have healthy debate. And that's what we call it, healthy debate. Uh, yeah, you might say this to me, but I might say no, but it's okay for us to have that conversation. So so that that was a place where it was very odd. It was very, in big companies, they get that. It's very autocratic, like this is the way you're going to do it, so people didn't do it.
0: We're going to switch it over to Jan's Thanks so much. Uh, Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank, so. thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, though. Hey, thank you, thank man. You, yeah. I appreciate it. I love Jeffrey's quote, you can only move as fast as your slowest common denominator. As a founder, you build your team up slowly and often get to know each employee personally, which can make it really tough to be objective when it comes to their performance and attitude. Or maybe you think their contradictory opinions are just them playing devil's advocate, or offering an alternate opinion that should be considered, maybe. But Jeffrey's little tests can help show if they're simply trying to help or if they're just not on board with your vision. I really like his tactic of making everyone state their job, explain what they do and how that drives the company forward. Make them do it out loud and in front of everyone, then hold them accountable to it. If they're not performing, it'll quickly become obvious to everyone and to them, which makes it a lot easier when it comes time to let them go. This tactic has the added benefit of creating a culture of responsibility. When everyone knows that everyone else knows what's expected of them, and they see everyone else performing, they're more likely to perform at a high level too. And as the question at the end suggests, this helps keep everyone focused on the mission, understanding what part they play and why they're important. As always, thanks for listening. I hope each episode is providing value in some small way in helping you grow your company. Let me know. Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever app you're using right now. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover, hit me up on social media. I'm at the build cycle on all three. Here's hoping your team gets it. Until next time, keep building.